And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. Yeah, great question. You are the power. And you do not need anybody's permission. Great question. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. That is literally a brilliant question. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Our featured guest is an individual who I wanted to interview for close to maybe five years. His books have fundamentally changed the way I think I have never learned so much about critical thinking than I did when reading this gentleman's books. There's a lot to say. Let us begin tonight's program. Welcoming to the program is an individual whose name that I have mentioned so many times on our radio show before. Some people have actually asked if I am his publicist. And no, I wish I was because I think this individual (laughs) is brilliant. I have read his books inside and out and i can't tell you what a huge impact they've had on me and if you are somebody who wishes to learn who wishes to engage in critical thinking wishes to have a greater understanding of yourself the people around you and the world you live in you must have this gentleman's books on your bookshelf joining us now is mr robert green he's the author of the new york times bestsellers the 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, The 50th Law and Mastery, and his latest book, The Laws of Human Nature. You can learn more about him by going to his website at powerseductionandwar.com. Mr. Green, what an honor it is to have you on our show. Thank you so much for being with us today, sir. Well, thank you. I hope I can live up to the to the hype here. Well, you books... <laughs> Our yeah. to life. I can, you're one of those books, especially the 48 Laws of Power. It's one of those yeah. books where I can reread over and over again. And for yeah. those of you who are not uh, too f- familiar with Robert's books, is that there's so much research in there that we, especially the Laws of Power, like I can't believe that you were able to cite 10 or 12 different examples on that. So I guess the first question is, how long does it take you to write one of your books? And how many other books do you read to research them? Well, the first book was the fastest one. I was younger and healthier and quite desperate to make my first book succeed. That took me two years. And ever since then, it just seems to keep increasing as I slow down with age. You know, the latest book took almost six years. Um, and, uh, you know, I do a lot of research because I want to ground my books in as much material and as much reality as possible. I just don't want to be spouting ideas just for the sake of, of writing, you know, of publishing a book. I want to make it very real and very helpful for the reader. So for this last book, I read well over 300 books to research it. The 48 Laws of Power was probably something similar. Um, it's pretty amazing. And I thoroughly enjoyed your latest book, The Laws of Nature. And in The Laws of Nature, you write... For thousands of years, we humans believed in fate, some kind of force, spirits, or gods that compelled us to act in a certain way. Based on your years of research, what fundamental impact do you think that this type of belief ideology has had on humanity and its ability to further intellectual 
spiritual development. And also, do you think that if even if every religion were to suddenly be disproven, that new ones would emerge because of human nature's tendency to believe in some kind of force that is perceived to be greater than their own? Well, yes, I'm, I'm not sure I exactly understand the first part of the question, but um, basically for, a lot, for centuries, we, we had a certain viewpoint of human nature that was based primarily on a religious concept. And I'm not debunking religion. I'm not a, some rabid atheist. But we essentially thought we were, you know, descended from angels or some other spiritual source. And it was quite a shock in the 19th century to have it revealed that, in fact, we descended from primates. It kind of was a blow to our self-esteem. Um, and so even though with that shock, we still don't want to face certain basic realities about who we are. We like to project ourselves as this progressive technocratic, sophisticated, civilized being of the 21st century. And I'm trying to show in my book that that is not the case, that we carry within us in the world today the genes, the DNA, the same brain that existed well over 100,000 years ago, and we carry within us certain basic animal tendencies that we like to deny and repress. Um, as far as the need for religion, that certainly is um, a basic part of human nature, to believe in something. I write a chapter on, on, on aimlessness, on the need that humans have for a purpose in life, because we're not put here programmed like an animal is by instinct to do this or that, to react this way or that way. We wake up in the morning and we could do thousands of different things. And this kind of choice of what we can do with our life, what we can do during the day, can actually be quite a crushing and depressing thought. So we like to believe in something larger than selves. We like to channel our energies into something that gives us a sense of mission and purpose. That could be religion, that could be um, politics or, or communism or some utopia, that could be technology that could be in some political cause today, like uh, against globalism or whatever. But we have to believe in something. And if we don't, um, we, we pay consequences for. So the need for religion is very much embedded in, in human nature. Okay, and it's actually, I do have a question about that. And the laws of human nature, you do write that all of us want to believe that we, there is some purpose and meaning to life. So mm -hmm. would that imply that without that conviction, yeah. does that mean that atheists or non-religious or non-spiritual individuals are more likely to feel depressed and on a deeper spiritual level? Would, if collective humanity were to say, discover that there is no purpose to life but only to experience life itself, do you think that that would likely kill off most, if not all, of humanity's hope for the future and their drive to attain certain goals? Well, let's, let's look at that. There's no way of escaping the logic of the need for a belief system. So atheism is a belief system. We can't prove or disprove the existence of God. There's not an atheist on this planet, not a scientist in this world, who can literally prove that God does not exist, nor can someone prove that God does exist. So atheism is a belief system. You believe in it. And if you look at people who are fanatic about atheism... They are just as fanatic as anybody who believes in a religion. 
they have managed to transform atheism into their belief system. So no matter what humans do, they find some kind of belief system to cling to. There can even be nihilistic and cynical belief systems where you think life has no meaning. And there were plenty of nihilists in the 19th century and on to the 20th century who that really gave them a kind of a purpose in life. So a human being is guided by some kind of larger purpose. It's inevitable. It's as inevitable as the sun will rise in the morning. You can't avoid the dynamic. So no matter how, if you're trying to believe that there's absolutely no hope in life, well, you, that's a belief of yours. And in some ways, that serves you. It, it, maybe, it makes you feel better about yourself. I don't know. But humans have to believe in something. We can't have everything in our life be proven or be rational. We hold beliefs without really knowing why we hold those beliefs. Thank you. And if we examine civilizations throughout history, we can see several examples of civilizations with a ruling class or mm -hmm. civilizations with a ruling alpha leader. Is it mm -hmm. truly human nature to emulate the alpha and follow protocol as seen in various species of animals? Or do you think that the alpha follower or master-slave relationship is one bred out of cunningness for which humans seize power over others? Is that part of human nature or is that part of human ability just to be cunning to seize power over others? Is that something that naturally comes to people? Which is totally Well, it's a good question, and um, I don't know if I have the absolute answer to it, but um, for certainly among primates, uh, we notice the phenomenon, and chimpanzees are our closest relative of the alpha male. It's a very real phenomenon. Their um, communities, chimpanzees have communities, are organized in this kind of hierarchical situation with the alpha male chimpanzee. But then there are the bonobos, other primates that also were similar to us, who don't seem to have that trait. I, um, in the chapter on authority I have on the laws of human nature, I, my point is that we humans are basically ambivalent towards leaders, towards people that you might classify as alpha males. On the one hand, we feel the need for leadership. We feel the need for someone who brings the group together, who has a vision for where the group must be, and who, who guides us in the right direction. On the other hand, we deeply resent the fact that someone is grabbing more power than they perhaps need. And people in power tend to want more power. So throughout history, in ancient times, we have the phenomenon where a, a, a tribe will elevate someone to kingship, or, or early civilization will elevate someone to a kingship, and then they will execute him after five or ten years because he, he gets too much power. It almost becomes a ritual, the killing of the king. So we feel very ambivalent. I, I'm not saying that um, that uh, the alpha male is part of human nature or not. It, it, there certainly are a, a large number of alpha males in the world today, and they do tend to accumulate a fair amount of power. Um, and some of it comes through raw aggression. I have a chapter on aggression and how um, some people are more aggressive than others, and they tend to monopolize power. But the thing that we must realize, and we see it in the world constantly, is that we both love and hate those who lead us. And in American politics, we notice 
that every four or eight years, we want a big change in our lives. And that leader who we venerated four years ago or 10 years ago is now completely despised. Um, as like someone like President Bill Clinton is not generally admired now for many reasons, perhaps not just having to deal with with uh, our ambivalence towards power. But we don't have um, – our emotions are complicated when it comes to people in le- positions of leadership, as are, our emotions are complicated in many situations. So um, my answer is that uh, that as as a primate – we have a tendency to be organized hierarchically, but that's not a, a, a hard and fast rule. Um, we have also have a tremendous desire for democracy, for leveling power situations, and we see that throughout history. Got it. And I love, in the laws of human nature, that you talk about getting in touch with the human shadow, talking about facing your, uh-huh. your inner dragon. So right. when addressing this, what are the fundamental benefits of addressing your shadow? And if people do not address their shadow, is that something that will ultimately come back and reveal itself to be a, a self-destructive habit? Was that something where addressing your shadow should be on an individual and a societal collective level where you need to look at the darkness within? So what are the benefits and shortcomings of processing and not processing your shadow? Well, there's there's no shortcomings. It's it's extremely necessary, um, and I try and show you where this shadow self exists within you. Um, I I trace it back to our earliest childhood years, when as children we can remember that we felt a deep range of emotions. We often acted out. We could be quite cruel to to a sibling or a friend, and at the same time quite loving to a to that same person or to a parent. We had a full range of emotions, some of which included negative things, acting out and tantrums. And soon we had to learn to smooth that all out in order to get along in society. We had to repress um, or at least disguise some of our aggressive desires. And so a part of our personality goes into a shadow. We, It's still there. It doesn't disappear. Nothing from our early life ever disappears. It just lies there in our unconscious. It doesn't disappear. It's there, but we repress it or we hide it from other people. And so when that happens, when we split off from our consciousness, the dark side of our personality, it comes out in weird ways. And you see it all the time in news where suddenly some politician or celebrity has an affair or does something that reveals, wow, I didn't realize that that person was actually like this, that they actually had this particular inclination or problem. And they'll come to the public and say, oh, that really wasn't me. It was just one time that it happened. But in fact, when people act in strange ways, when that 65-year-old professor suddenly runs, runs off with a porn star, that's actually more of who they are. The shadow is speaking from within. It can't be repressed for long. It will leak out in weird behavior. If you're deeply repressing your aggressive impulses, they will come out in passive aggressive behavior. If you're riddled with envy and you're an envious type of person and you try and repress it and show the world that you're just a sweet, charming person, that envious part of your nature will sneak out in all kinds of, of passive aggressive type behavior. 
So there's no benefit in disguising or repressing the shadow. It will come out um, in, in some form or other. And so it's always better, in this book I try to say, it's always better to know yourself, to be aware of who you are. Some people find the book a bit of a difficult read in the sense that it makes you confront aspects of your personality that you didn't believe existed or didn't want to believe existed. But knowing who you are, knowing that you might have these tendencies to be self-absorbed or to have a kind of hostile attitude towards life or to feel envy or to feel aggressive impulses, being aware of them now gives you the possibility to control, to change them and to channel that energy into something positive. And I also maintain the shadow side of our character contains great amounts of energy and great creative potential. Any artist who wants to create something powerful and lasting has to tap into his or her shadow to those unconscious impulses that we all feel but never act upon. And so knowing this part of yourself and using it in your creative endeavors and channeling your aggressive impulses and being more honest about who you are will make you a more authentic individual. And I think in the long run, people will respect you more. It doesn't mean that you act out in society all of your darkest impulses. It's more that you're aware of them and that you find ways to channel them into productive activities. In your book, Philosophy of Nature, you, you cite some toxic character types, such as the hyperfectionist, the personalizer, the relentless rebel. Once someone has been one of these toxic characters for a long time, what are some of the causalities that will allow them to fundamentally transform into a different character? Or are individuals who have been one of these toxic characters for such a long period of time, are they forever tainted with these qualities that even a fundamental life change or a life event will not allow them to change themselves beyond the surface level? Well, it's it's impossible to generalize on that. I mean, I try and I, I my books are written with the hope that all people can change themselves, but I make the point that really, really toxic types have a much harder time changing themselves because they're completely unaware of what they're doing, or if they are aware of it, they they see it as a source of power. And so, um, my I write about toxic types because. If they enter your life, such as a toxic narcissist, I talk a lot about narcissism in the book, they can create a lot of damage to you. They can create a lot of emotional trauma. It can take years to recover from these kinds of relationships. And I think we've all had them. And toxic people don't walk around with a neon sign saying, I'm a narcissist, I'm aggressive, I'm a hyper-perfectionist. I'm this or that. They'd learn early on to disguise themselves and to present themselves to you as someone who's charming or who's got a good heart or who's just wants to be your friend. And then once they enter your life, they can create all kinds of problems and havoc. Now, whether they can change or not uh, is, is, is a difficult question. So in the narcissism chapter, I talk about the fact that we're all basically self-absorbed. We all have narcissistic tendencies. It's very human, it's very much a part of human nature to always say it's the other person who's a narcissist, the other person who's the aggressor. And I'm trying to say we all share these traits. It's just that we are not as deeply self-absorbed as other people, as a deep narcissist would be. 
we, most of us, can, we're self-absorbed, but at moments we can rise above it, above this self-absorption and pay attention to people and care about them and feel empathy. A deep narcissist is so embedded in their self, so insecure and so hungry for attention from other people that they can't rise above that level and pay attention to other people and get outside of themselves. Now, is that impossible for them to cure themselves? Um, plenty of people who have had very deep narcissistic problems have had some success through therapy. And there are many examples of people who are toxically narcissistic who channel that energy into their work and become very great artists and writers and musicians. We see examples of that all the time. And then sometimes, as you mentioned, a life-changing event can happen, the death of a near someone close to them or some kind of tremendous failure can wake them up, you know. But in general, the tendency is for someone who's deeply self-absorbed to see everything around them as being personal and react in that level, and that's very hard to get out of. As far as the other toxic types, if you're a toxic envier, I have a whole chapter on envy. It's very, very difficult to look at yourself. I describe envy, which is an extremely human emotion, as one of the trickiest things to deal with because no one is honest to themselves about their envy. No one likes to admit that they feel envy because it's an ugly emotion to admit to. It means you feel inferior. So what we do is when we feel envy, we blame it on the other person. If we feel that that other person has something we deserve, we don't we don't uh, narrate that to ourselves in that way. Instead, we say that that other person doesn't deserve the success that they have. We want to knock them down, sabotage them. We paint them as the evil persons, the source of our problem, not ourselves. So enviers have a very difficult time to look inward and be aware. And so someone like that, I think, would have a very difficult time changing. It really depends on your circumstances and the depth of the toxicity that we're talking about. Thank you. And I want to say also in the Laws of Human Nature, you devote an entire chapter to reconnecting to healthy masculinity, femininity. And segue uh -huh. to our next question, which is for hundreds of years, cultures across the globe have had archetypes initiations, which mark the official transitions from boys to men, from girls to women, from apprentices to masters, from workers to warriors. From your yeah. perspective, what are some modern-day archetype initiations for boys and for girls that will put them on the path to mature and responsible adulthood? And what are some archetype initiations that you think mark the transition from apprentice to master? Well, it's a really interesting question. Um, unfortunately, we don't really have that kind of, of societal organization anymore. We don't have initiation rituals. We don't have these kind of transitions anymore. So in the old days, if you studied a craft, I'm talking more like the Middle Ages, you would be an apprentice to a master carpenter or painter or whomever. And after seven years, you were considered that you'd finished your apprenticeship and you would be initiated into the role of being a journeyman in that craft. And then after 10 years, you would literally go through a ritual in which you were initiated as a master in that craft. 
Now, we obviously don't have those kinds of transitions anymore. You could say that going, finishing university or finishing grad school, you now enter a new world. But I think we have a problem in that we don't recognize that we don't organize such kinds of rituals, that we don't talk about it in this way, and we just sort of let young people float around in this world. And in my book, Mastery, I try and describe the process to mastery as involving the ancient ritual of an apprenticeship. You discover the craft that you want, your your purpose in life, what I call your life's task. You go through an apprenticeship in your 20s, trying to figure out where you fit in, what, what you're meant to do, and you learn as many skills as you possibly can. And then you, you work with a mentor, as they did in the old days. And then at some point, you reach the level of creativity where you're able to create something on your own. The problem is, in the world today, you have to shift for yourself. You have to figure out, have I served an apprenticeship? Have I learned enough to now go out on my own and start my own business or write a novel or begin you know, a new, a new venture, a new enterprise? or launch my political career? Have I learned enough to do that? Nobody will tell you. And so I have described in, in, in Mastery how you might know when you have reached that point, how you know that you're ready to make that transition because we really don't help people in this world. So the idea of having a ritual of being initiated from being a boy to a man was a really, really important, served a very important function which I think is missing in the world today. And that's why I talked, I had a chapter to the laws of human nature about purpose, about finding your purpose in life, because nobody else will do it for you. There's no kind of system in place that's going to help guide you. And the icon that I wrote for that chapter, the story that <clears throat> anchors it, is the story of Martin Luther King and what a right. lost young... And and he was sort of a lost young man. He couldn't figure out, was he meant to be a preacher like his father? Was he meant to be a social organizer? Was he meant to be someone who just liked to study in the university and write dissertations? He had a kind of a pleasure-loving side where he enjoyed hanging out with women and, and playing pool and going to dances. Who was he? What is my purpose in life? He couldn't find it. And then suddenly... He had a crisis in life, and he he discovered his relationship to God, which he never really was an ardent believer. We don't realize this, but he was a bit of a skeptic as a young man. He hadn't really found true religion until he went through this terrible crisis that involved uh, his first sort of civil rights activity. And then he realized, this is what I was meant to do. I was meant to preach and, and help the African-American community raise itself up. And I need to do this even to the point of killing myself and opening myself to martyrdom. This is my purpose in life. This is what organizes all the different parts of myself, my pleasure-loving self, my intellectual self, my preacher, my love of humanity. And he discovered it. And so you have to go through that painful process on your own. You have to be the one putting yourself through the apprenticeship and finding what it is that you, that you were meant to do. It's painful. It, it, it involves a lot of soul searching and introspection. And then you have to decide, 
how long you're going to study at this, and then you have reached the right skill level to proceed to the next level, on and on. But doing this will give yourself, give your life purpose and direction and meaning, and everything you do will have so much more power behind it. Thank you. My understanding is that prior to becoming an author, you worked 80 jobs. I think some of them are construction worker, translation, translator, magazine editor. So I imagine if you have worked 80 previous jobs prior to finding your niche, what was it that you learned about working through all those jobs? And what was the moment when you realized that being an author was your calling? Was it a certain feeling? Did it just flow? Did you just have more inspiration? Did you have an energy surge and it just things came natural to you when you did it? So I'm just... well, 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 my process was pretty simple. As a young man, I knew that I was meant to be a writer. I loved words. I loved books. Um, and then when I entered university, I always thought that I was going to be a writer of something. I didn't know what. Was I going to be an academic writer? Was I going to be a journalist? Was I going to be a novelist? I hadn't a clue. And so when I was in my 20s, after I graduated university, I was a, basically a bum. I just wandered from job to job. I worked in all kinds of different non-related fields. I traveled to Europe. I wandered and I had jobs and I worked in a hotel in Paris. I was a teacher of English in Spain. And basically I was searching. I wanted experiences because I knew to be a writer you have to have experiences. I tried journalism and I hated it. I tried writing a novel and I realized I wasn't very good at it. I then moved back to Los Angeles where I was from and tried my hand at Hollywood and it wasn't right. I didn't feel it didn't feel like a good connection there. On and on I went, year after year, keep trying to figure out what it is, what kind of writing I needed to do and what kind of experiences I could call upon to actually write something important. And then in 1995, when I was about 36 years old, and it looked like maybe I wouldn't find my way in life and things, I was just going to be kind of a lost soul. I met a man. Uh, I was in Italy at the time for a, for a job, for yet another job. And he was a book packager, um, somebody who kind of produces books. And he asked me one day, we're walking in Venice, Italy, very beautiful sunny day in spring, um, did I have any ideas for books? And suddenly, almost like out of nowhere, I can't even explain how or why it happened, I just started improvising in this idea about power because in my 80 different jobs, I had experienced 80 different kinds of bosses. I had seen 80 different kinds of court-like environments where people toady up to the boss, where there's all kinds of intrigue and manipulation. I had so much experience in that realm, it was incredible. And also, I read a lot of history. So I just sort of improvised this idea about how power is timeless, how what happened in the court of Louis XIV is going on in the offices of Microsoft, etc., that nothing has really changed. And his eyes light up. He goes, wow, that's a great idea for a book. And, you know, that's just an idea. It doesn't mean anything unless I act on it. And he, as, uh, as a very kind of wise person, he decided to pay me um, to live for several months while I wrote the beginning of the book. And I must tell you, I was so desperate 
to, I was like Martin Luther King in that way, although not as noble a cause, to find myself, because I had been lost for so long, that I put so much energy into making that book happen. I was desperate that this would be my calling in life. And everything, all my experiences, all the wandering, all the different 80 jobs, all the different cultures and experiences, they all now suddenly channeled or funneled into this book. I could call upon everything I had seen and everything I had read. So it was like the perfect combination. And my point for a lot of people in life is the following. You know, opportunities will come to you. Um, They're inevitable, as this was a great opportunity for me. The point is, will, will you recognize it as the opportunity of your life, and will you be in the right position to exploit it? And you, if I hadn't spent those years trying to write and figuring out how to write and, uh, and acquiring skills as a researcher and a writer, I wouldn't have been prepared to write the book, and it would have, been, it would have meant any, nothing. So you need to prepare yourself. You need to develop as many skills as you can in the field that you love. And when you do that, at some point, I'm almost certain, the right opportunity will cross your path and you will be in a position to exploit it. I believe that's sort of the lesson for, of my life, at least. It's amazing. I'm well said. Thank you. In The Laws of Human Nature, you talk about the law of conformity. Yeah. A law, law that I break every single day. <laughs> and so that it, when in a group setting, we unconsciously initiate what others say do. We think differently. We feel different. We, we, we're more prone to taking risk because everyone else is doing it. So do you think that hyper-political correctness is making the law of conformity into an ironclad law which has allowed millions of people to be comfortable with things such as uh, endless wars, regression of civil liberties, repression of others' rights, and how does one defy the downward pull of a group and even shatter its projection of power? Well, um, the, the, we, we call it political correctness, but political correctness has been in existence for thousands of years. It just is a different name and has a different look. People are wearing different costumes, but it's always been around. That's because when you form any kind of group, um, there will be some sort of belief system that unifies the group, a cause, an enemy that is evil, you know, on and on and on. The group coheres around a mission or a cause and an evil enemy they must fight. And so whenever this occurs, whether it's a tribe, a city, a, a nation, a civilization, <coughs> there will be an orthodoxy. There will be conventions that people must adhere to. And those who don't adhere to these conventions are ostracized. We can go off and down the line from ancient Egypt to Rome, to the Middle Ages, to the Renaissance, and watch this phenomenon over and over again. It occurred consistently in, in, in Russian Revolution, in communist China, in the McCarthy era in the United States. It's not that this is some sort of aberration that we're going through now. It is deeply embedded in human nature. And the reason I say, uh, I believe this is true, is we're obviously a social animal. And as a social animal, um, we inherited certain qualities, which is that we're extremely vulnerable 
to the emotions and moods and ideas of the people around us. You, you'll find this phenomenon, I find it quite remarkable. I remember I went to the office, Microsoft office about 12 years ago to give a talk, and here's a campus of 20, 30,000 people, and they all kind of dressed alike. They all had sort of had similar mannerisms. It was rather shocking. You go into any group situation, and you'll notice that people will tend to dress a similar way. If, if, if it's an alternative crowd, people will have their tattoos and their long hair and their certain type of clothing. That's a new kind of orthodoxy that people must conform to. We're not even conscious of this happening. When we're in a group, we are naturally inclined to assume the ideas and the values of the group that we belong to. We have a deep need to belong and the sense of being ostracized from a group is the feeling of almost being killed, of almost death. So unconsciously we are continually absorbing the ideas, the moods, and the values of the group that we belong to. And this can be very dangerous, as I show in this in the story that I used to illustrate it, which comes from the Cultural Revolution in China, that our conformist tendencies can lead to violence, can lead to some of the worst crimes that humanity has ever committed, where the group doesn't feel responsible. If 10,000 people are running, are, are, are killing and, and committing crimes, not one individual actually feels guilty or responsible because everyone in the group is doing it. The group gives you cover. The group allows you to feel that it's okay to feel hatred towards an outsider or to an alien or to someone who has a different skin color. The group gives you license to act out all of that shadow side that we're talking about. And throughout history, people have tried to stop this in some way. They've tried through education. They've tried through, um, through some kind of creating some new social utopia, like communism or whatever, to eradicate these traits in human nature. But they won't go away. The only way you can control this is on an individual level. Being aware of the tendency to fall for the group dynamic for being pulled down into the same level of thinking and acting as the people that you are around, and to be aware of your conformist tendencies, to not simply believe that your ideas are always your own or that you're the most independent, autonomous person. That's impossible. Your ideas come from a group. All our ideas come from our parents, our educators, the books we read, the movies we watch. You're not as independent and as autonomous as you think you are. And only by confronting that and being aware of how deeply you are a conformist like we all are can you begin to then start to think for yourself. So, I mean, I could be wrong, but my belief that this has to change on an individual consciousness level. Thank you, Mr. Green. Mr. Green, a dear friend of mine, his name is Chris Duane, and for many years he has been warning people through logic, through a number of different ways, that we are on the cusp of the worst financial crash in recorded history. And it's not just uh, Chris. It's Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's uh -huh. uh, legendary investors such as Jim Rogers. And a lot of people are saying this. And at the same time, most people don't foresee this coming. Even though there's a lot of data which reveals it to happen, they don't see it coming. Well, long story short, Chris says that once this event happens, it'll be the largest event in human history. And it'll be a collective ego death. So from what you've observed and from what you know about human nature, when a person has these long-held beliefs that are suddenly 
disproven that there's no way, shape, or form that they can accept this. Their hand is forced, and they realize that the beliefs that they once had are no longer there. How do people tend to react when they experience an ego death on an individual level, and how do nations and collective groups respond to an ego death? Well, it depends. You can either use it as a healing moment, a wake-up call, a call for self-awareness, or it can lead to insanity and madness as you no longer have that anchor in your life and you think all of life is just meaningless and you go on a rampage. We look at the French Revolution, a period that I have studied in great depth, and this is a period where the ground suddenly shifts and all the old values are gone. And the civilization that had existed for 800 years, you know, founded on the, on the French monarchy, suddenly was disappearing, was shattered. And here we have a new order emerging. And in the initial period, people feel incredible, at least the French populace, not the aristocrats, feel incredible freedom, incredible liberation. How exciting is this moment? We're going to create a utopia. And then slowly it starts descending as, as there are no values to replace the old values, as people start panicking at what, what it is that they're actually creating, that it descends into terror and to sheer anarchy and into one of the most violent periods in human history. So there's no book written that will tell you exactly how people will respond. There are two poles. They're either we're on the cusp of creating something new and exciting, or there's the potential for incredible mass violence you know um so you have to that's why i keep returning back to this idea of people's need to believe in something um and if you suddenly take that away from them on a group on a collective level it's usually not the healthiest kind of situations there's a a, a moment of tremendous panic we have to believe in something something has to replace it and often what replaces the old values are worse. We've seen this before. Occasionally they're better, but often they're worse. So I don't know of a fast, hard and fast rule for what will happen in these moments, but I will say that studying history like I do, they are constantly recurring. History is cyclical. It's not like we're about to face an economic devastation that will destroy humanity once and for all. These things have happened before. Um, people, we've had economic cataclysms in history, the Great Depression being the last really large one. So these things constantly recur, and I'm interested in the reasons for why they recur. I have a chapter in there about, um, about bubbles like we went through in 2008, you know, um, and I talk about the South, South Sea bubble in England in the early 18th century and why our economies go through these continual cycles where people speculate and incur massive amounts of debt that aren't based on anything real, then the whole thing crashes and people are left to, to sort of face the sober reality. When the South Sea bubble burst in, in 1720, it was an actual awakening for the English and they put in all kinds of laws to prevent that kind of speculation from occurring again. But lo and behold, 120 years later, it recurs with the great railway speculation that nearly brought England to its knees in the 1840s. So we don't learn the lessons. Humanity 
collectively, it is hard for us to learn these lessons. If, you know, we went through the speculative bubble that burst in the year 2000 with the tech bubble, but then eight years later, we walk into the same trap with real estate, and now we're about to walk into the same debt with a new bubble that's forming, it's that people don't learn on a collective level. It has to be up to individuals and their consciousness that suddenly alters this dynamic. Mr. Green, we just have one question for you, one final question. The last question we have yeah. for you is, of all the lessons that you have taught within your books, what do you think is the most profound, most powerful lesson? Well, um, it's that knowing yourself is the highest form of wisdom that you can have. So self-awareness is a value in and of itself. It doesn't necessarily going to make you better looking. It's not going to make you necessarily richer. It's not going to make you have a better love life, but it will bring its own rewards on so many levels. It's its own, it's, it's worth itself. It doesn't, it doesn't need any higher value than that. And what I mean is, it sounds like sort of a cliche, know yourself, but it's actually extremely difficult because first you must come to terms with the fact that you don't know yourself. That the person that you see every day in the mirror is a stranger. You don't know why you feel certain emotions. You don't know why you're necessarily attracted to this person or not that one. You don't know why you hold certain beliefs on and on and on. You don't know where they come from. You can't go back and rationally um, uh, decipher the source of why you hold certain beliefs or values or ideas. So you're a stranger to yourself. And many of your ideas come from the group, come from conforming to other people, come from listening to your mother and father. You don't know who you are. But by knowing who you are, by knowing all more deeply about your own nature, you have the ability to change yourself. And perhaps the most important quality of all is to know what your purpose is in life, what it is that you were meant to accomplish, what is that skill, that thing that sets you apart from other people that makes it so that you can realize your potential and, and kind of be the creative person that you want to be. So I would say on all levels, on all my books, I've always preached the importance of self-awareness as kind of the ultimate value. And um, I approach it from a strategic point of view. Here are strategies, here are practical tips for helping you decipher and learn about who you are and how you, can, and how you will manage stress and adversity and how you will find your way towards your life's task, um, on and on. But I think that would be the most important lesson I've learned in all of my, my experience. Mr. Robert Green, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's such a great honor, considering how many years I've been reading your books and how much respect I've had have for you. And Mr. Robert Green is the author of New York Times bestsellers, 48 Laws of Power, Art of Seduction, 33 Strategies of War, 50th Law, and Mastery, and the brilliant new book, The Laws of Human Nature. You can learn more about Mr. Green by going to his website at powerseductionandwar.com. Mr. Green, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our amazing guest, Mr. Robert Green. I can't tell you again what an honor it was to interview him. And special thanks, as always, to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Lisa Kaza, and Ms. Constance Stellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website, outerlimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you as always for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com.